Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Five New York Times bestselling novelists, endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe, along with librarian Ron Block. As novelists, we are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Friends in Fiction is sponsored by Mama Geraldine's Bodacious Foods. Kathy Cunningham was a successful but unfulfilled radio executive in Atlanta. One night, while sipping wine and snacking on expensive cheese straws, she realized her Mama Geraldine's own cheese straw recipe was far superior. The idea for Kathy's company was born. Mama Geraldine's cheese straws now come in six varieties, and they are the best-selling cheese straw in the United States. Plus, the cookies are melt-in-your-mouth delicious. Yummy snacks and a woman-owned empire? Now that is something that we here at Friends in Fiction can get behind. Try them. You'll be so glad that you did. Get 20% off on your online order at mamageraldines.com with the code FAB5. Snack on, y'all. Welcome to a special episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block. Today we're celebrating Pride Month. This is the month for members of the LGBTQ plus community to shine, celebrate, and reflect. I'm beyond excited to welcome three extremely talented writers who each write in a little bit different genre. We'll be joined by P.J. Vernon, author of the thriller Bathhouse, Stephen Rowley, author of the touchingly hilarious book The Gunkle, and rounded out by James Beard award-winning chef Virginia Willis. First up is P.J. Vernon. P.J. was born in South Carolina. He was called a rising star thriller writer by Library Journal. His debut, When You Find Me, was both an Audible Plus number one listen and Associated Press top 10 U.S. audiobook. His next novel, Bathhouse, praised as a nightmarish white knuckler by O! The Oprah magazine and on so many top 10 lists of things to read. And and it's gotten so much attention. Chris Bujalian, who I admire greatly, said Bathhouse is riveting, a gripping thriller about how quickly a life can unravel after a single bad decision. P.J. Vernon deftly reminds us that the terrifying traumas from childhood are often but a prelude to the nightmares we will walk into as adults. This book is stylish, smart, and scary as hell. Welcome, P.J. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. I I am just over the moon excited to dive into this conversation with you today. I am so excited about though, because you know I've read it already, and I have told every living soul I know that they better be on the list for this book. I think when we air, it'll have been out for a few days, so I'm anticipating that we can have a part two when the paperback releases and we can finish up how the success of the launch was. Love it. I'm game. (laughs) Okay, well, let's do it. So, uh, Bathhouse, tell us about the book. Tell us the story. So, uh, Bathhouse is a thriller, as you say. It's pitched as uh, Gone Girl with Gays and Grinder. It's about a young gay man, uh, Oliver Park, who makes an epic mistake, a mini, a string of epic mistakes, um, (laughs) and is uh, desperate to keep a very, very dangerous indiscretion from uh, his seemingly perfect husband. Yes. 
Oliver and Nathan. <laughs> so what, what's the origin of the story? I always like to know, like, what was the kernel that kind of put this idea in your head? Yeah, I always joke. 2013 was a hell of a year for me <laughs> in terms of in terms of researching, and you know, I did all my grinder research exhaustively before I ever even knew I was going to be a writer or writing about it. Um, so, so that you know, well of creativity was sort of baked in already. Um, but I actually, I had been, I had drafted uh, what would become my debut when you find me a few years ago and was in the process of seeking literary representation for it. And, um, you know, kind of as many authors, most authors, uh, I would, I would guess could relate racking up rejection after rejection. Um, and so I thought to myself, you know, if I can't sell this book, um, that I had, uh, I should back up and say, uh, written gay characters out of my initial instinct was to center, um, any, any book I write on uh, a gay couple, but because I was insecure, because I feared that it wouldn't sell, I preemptively took those characters out of it, um, which, you know, in retrospect is incredibly, you know, I, I, I don't punish myself for making those kinds of decisions, no, but no. it is certainly, you know, restrictive for my own work when, when I'm not allowed to act, when I'm not giving myself permission to access, you know, my own lived experiences uh, and, and to get that onto the page. But while my first book was sort of flaming out, I kind of had a, a screw it moment. I thought, you know, if I can't um, sell this one, I, why am I holding back? Why don't I write what I want to write, which is something, which is myself, might not autobiographically, but people like me on the page. Um, and, you know, I wrote like no one was watching and no one cared because no one was watching and no one cared. And it was liberating and I could be very honest and unflinching and, and go um, all sorts of places that felt natural to me. And uh, that's sort of where the story came from as far as, you know, the, the bathhouse aspect and, and how it opens. I, I wrote it simply with making it as, as gripping uh, as I possibly could, as early as I possibly could with the idea that, you know, if an agent lets me send a page along, um, hopefully they won't be able to uh, stop reading. They'll ask for more. And then, of course, that would translate into, uh, I hope, casual readers feeling the same way. Yeah, a couple of things. I think that you, your first book was really, really good. It was very well received, but I think it's when you find your true voice that you really hit your stride. And I think this really kind of pitched you in a really wonderful direction. But I also want to say that it is a thriller that anybody can access. It's not something that you have to be knowledgeable about the world of, of growing up gay or anything to do. do. It's just, it's the kind of book where for me, it was so fast paced and you did exactly what you said. You, you started right out of the gate with something really kind of, ah, and then from there it just kept going and going and going. And I was turning page after page. I read it in one sitting and I think a lot of people will do that too. And, and who doesn't love a book like that right now? I, I appreciate that so much and, and it captures my own feelings entirely. I, I didn't want to sit at the diversity table. I wanted to sit at the thriller table, yeah. um, just with characters who happen to be queer. And it's been incredibly heartening to be reminded that readers literally just love a good story. Thriller readers literally just love a good thriller. And if you deliver that, that's all that they expect. Um, yes. and that's been incredibly encouraging to, to see firsthand. So um, tell everybody a little bit more about Oliver and Nathan, without giving any spoilers, but just kind of who they are and, and what they bring to the table in the story. Absolutely. So Oliver and Nathan um, are, are two very different uh, cis gay men. Oliver is uh, from small town Indiana, 
Um, I, I'm from small town South Carolina and, you know, never, never grew up in the Midwest, but there's a lot of similarities uh, from small town to small town and a lot of things that, you know, folks can relate to there. But he, he had arrived before the story starts at a moment in his life where he was, he had hit a rock bottom with personal challenges. He struggles with uh, a, a broken home that he comes from, um, a lot of, a lot of dark things that, that happen um, there and in his past. And of course, uh, an, an opioid addic- addiction, which he had sort of bottomed out, was right there on that precipice of, of finally getting help. He was in a, a rehab program. And, and that was when he met Nathan, um, who is everything that he isn't. Uh, Nathan is an East Coast, you know, moneyed family, very, for all intents and purposes, waspy uh, in, in however you imagine uh, that, to, that to look. And, and a successful trauma surgeon at Walter Reed in D.C. and older than Oliver by about a decade. And, you know, the two of them together, their relationship is complicated. Um, it's got, you know, as so many folks uh, experience, co- codependencies, um, you know, riddle it. There's it, it's being with someone uh, is just as much about them being the right person for you as it is the right timing. Um, when when you cross paths with them, and unfortunately, and this isn't a spoiler, you know Nathan and Oliver, everything else aside, cross paths at a time um, which might not have been the best. Because instead of Oliver, you know, uh, getting himself together and and pointing himself in the right direction, he now had someone in Nathan who has um, a, a savior syndrome and very much believes. Oh, yeah. That if he abandons Oliver, Oliver will relapse and die. Um, so those are those are Nathan's stakes before before <laughs> the story starts, and it's just not a good combination. Uh, it's not good timing, um, and it's often easier to go along with the inertia. So uh, by the time the story starts, the relationship has sort of reached a, a homeostasis of uh, stagnation, uh, and you know it's easier just to go along with it uh, than to open up and, and tell someone that you care about what you're feeling and what you're missing and what you need. Yes. So I want to know about how you put the two points of view together and kind of how the story evolved. But in hearing you speak, I'm wondering also if there are differences in their things are actually what you used to propel the story. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story. The original, I'm an underwriter, meaning my um, early drafts of novels uh, read like probably screenplays, not good ones. And, you know, I just sort of have, I'll throw in like insert action beat here later or develop this character later or win a Pulitzer with a line that you put here later. Um, and I feel like it, you know, at that point, it was literally just Oliver's point of view. Um, and that changed the story so much, uh, or it made it into an entirely different animal. And we didn't get Nathan. We didn't get a sense of, again, what's at stake for him, what's motivating him, and all the sorts of things that he's willing to do to mitigate what he believes is Oliver's impending, you know, relapse and ultimately um, destruction. Right. So it, the Nathan's point of view actually came quite a bit later after uh, my editor, Rob Bloom at Doubleday, who is amazing, had taken a call with me, loved that first kind of a little underwritten manuscript and said, you know, I'd love to take, take this on, but can you 
uh, can you add that connective tissue that the story was was sort of missing? And and it was really the best uh, thing I could have possibly done because it just made the story, the stakes, the conflict pop in a way that just did not exist from one point of view. And as a, a genre that hinges on suspense, you know, nothing gins that up more than readers getting uh, sneak peeks into two different characters' minds um, where they're withholding things from one another um, and interpreting uh, events quite differently as well. Um, so Nathan, Nathan's POV was a late ad and it was a great ad for sure. It was a great ad. <laughs> and it's so cool because you get, you're kind of in both of their minds, but then you, and you think, oh, how can they pull that off? And oh, that's how they do it. And then you think you don't know where it's going to go and boom. And just You think you're going to be able to put the book down and you can't because you leave every every chapter like at the end it's like oh god i can find out what happened as i said you have gotten unbelievable reviews for this what's your reaction been to that oh my i live in like i feel honest so i've never been asked this question before and uh it's 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 almost feverish like i feel like i'm sort of in this like dreamlike state um because you know Every every day I open up my inbox, there's there's something just incredible um, that just sets me off uh, spinning in all the best ways. Super excited, and it's I'm trying really, really, really hard to stay present and experience these moments at in some sort of timeline that's close to how time actually progresses because it feels like a whirlwind. Um, and it's, it's, I'm incredibly fortunate to, to be experiencing it. And I don't, you know, I know, uh, that nothing's guaranteed uh, in the future. Life is uncertain. Certainly. Um, there's, this could be, uh, maybe the only time I experience all of this and I'm trying my, my damnedest to, to hang on to every second. Um, it's been a fever dream in all the best ways I would say. Yeah. I'd be like, who who are they talking about? <laughs> um, so uh, Pub Week, we're kind of at the end of a pandemic, but we're still in a pandemic. What does your uh, Pub Week look like? Oh, it's a wild. Uh, lots of panels. So I think on the day of publication, I'll be at San Francisco Public Library doing panels. Got Instagram Live scheduled. Um, for so many evenings, uh, bookstore events, I'm the official launch, U.S. launch, will be with a very good friend of mine and, and seriously once in a generation storyteller, um, S.A. Cosby, who, uh, of course, yeah, Blacktop Wasteland, incredible, Razorblade Tears, had me hearing an 80-piece orchestra in like the most cinematic um, climax I, I could have imagined. Like, well, I, I did imagine. It was, I smelled everything. I smelled gasoline. I smelled, you know, all of these sorts of things. It was just incredible. So he'll be uh, hanging out with me at uh, Via Murder uh, by the Book uh, down in Houston. Um, and I'm looking forward to that because uh, S.A. Cosby is just a, an incredible uh, human being. And any excuse to hang out with him, uh, I'm going to jump all over. I hear you. I'll be tuning into that. You kind of talked about this a little bit about not being true to your voice through your first book. What other obstacles might you have gone through in order to get here? Yeah, it. Um, so I'll be uh, quite candid about it as well. Um, so I had mentioned I had sort of written uh, Bathhouse um, before I sold my debut, and then I sold my debut. Um, my agent, uh, Chris Bucci, is is incredible. He's been just the most relentless, fabulous advocate for, for me and my work. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we didn't receive a very, you know, sort of the enthusiastic response for Bathhouse that we were we were both 
uh, eager for. And, you know, because of all sorts of contract things and, and, uh, first rights of refusals and, and all, all those sorts of things, we wound up having to wait um, uh, quite a bit before we were able to take Bathhouse, you know, out into the wider publishing um, world to see, you know, if, if an editor out there just, you know, would pipe up and say, I'm, I'm the right one for, for this book, um, which fortunately happened. But again, it wasn't easy. I think like the waiting, you know, when you're insecure about, about a book or, a pro- or anything that's, that's close to you, um, and, you know, will main, mainstream, you know, readers accept this? Will they love it? Will, you know, will I be sort of put in a niche uh, uh, spot? Um, and, you know, every when June rolls around, it's, it's uh, time to read the book, but no other time sort of a sort of a thing. So to sort of have a, a you know, less again, less than enthusiastic response was a little like, oh, maybe my fears are valid. Maybe this is going to be a, a bit of a, a bit of a struggle. Um, and then, you know, again, just uh, the process of, you know, submitting it to publishers, you know, receiving rejections, which, I, you know, writing is, is so subjective and I can't control a business case for acquiring anything for that matter. But, you know, some of the some of the passes would say things, you know, like, oh, well, we published a gay book or not exactly in that <sighs> way, um, but they would name check a title that's like nothing right. like um, like my my novel and say, well, we published something just like this. So you know, no, no thanks or uh, those sorts. So those sorts of things were quite challenging. I will say for a project like this, it certainly needed to be in capable hands, but it needed to be in the right capable hands. And if nothing else, uh, with my agent, Chris, my editor, Rob, and the whole team at Doubleday, I can say that that absolutely happened. Um, They're incredible with what they've done for this book and the resources that they put behind it. I'm so grateful for them. That's great because I love it that, uh, that they're still doing. Oh, you, we've reached our quota. No, sorry, um, but I'm so glad that they did. They've done a fabulous job with this, and every aspect the the rollout has been incredible. So there's rumors. I'm, I'm as a librarian. I have one of my superpowers is research. So I understand you have some ties to the library system up in Calgary. Can you tell us about that? I sure do. I am a library advocate. Um, I think libraries are literally every city's living room. They're incredible. Um, I actually, when I moved up to Canada in a past life, I uh, was an immunologist for the defense department and I met my uh, husband, Barry, um, who's from Calgary up here in Canada, but uh, at the time was doing uh, a rotation over in Europe. He's in um, uh, oil and gas. And, um, you know, we were in a long distance relationship. Uh, had to make a tough choice at the end of his rotation of who's going to move where. Um, right. And so I uh, came up to, to Canada and um, abandoned gainful employment. I'd love to be able to say I was like courageous and going to redefine myself as, a, as an author. Uh, but what really happened was I, I came up here with, without a job. And for me, that was quite a, quite a trauma uh, as, as someone who had sort of defined himself for so long by a degree which I'll, I'll also mention I, I was so driven to get because I, you know, I'm a queer person from a very conservative community and, and certainly wanted to compensate and, and you know, bring something to the table for folks you know, that might, might not be making me feel so great for, for, being, um, for being who I am, um, which meant a terminal degree and all of this other stuff. But uh, once, I, once I got up here, um, started writing. And so I, I had time on my hands. Um, you know, publishing is a glacial process. Uh, so I was like, you know, I, I saw that the library system, Calgary Public Library, was um, embarking on their 
a huge capital campaign, the biggest one um, in the history of Canada, uh, embodied by our uh, new central library here. Um, and I was like, I love books. I love people who love books. I used to pay myself with grants that I would write. So I'm, I'd imagine I could, you know, fundraise for the library foundation. And so I, um, was, uh, for a few years, the development officer in charge of all of the, uh, corporate government and, um, philanthropic funds development, um, for that library system. And, and I still, uh, volunteer in that capacity whenever I'm, I'm useful, uh, and able, but libraries, librarians, uh, love them. Um, I don't know what world we'd be uh, without them um, and, and all the things that they do um, for, for so many people. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a great organization. It's open for all. So it's, it's kind of like the great unification for everybody is a place everybody can go and learn and, and uh, take advantage of. Um, any favorite authors or LGBTQ books that you can recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So as uh, we've sort of touched on, it's it's been incredible watching all of these um, new, splashy, sort of large press uh, queer books moving forward. Um, yes. I think of, you know, John Fram's um, The Brightlands, which is a sort of Southern Gothic Friday, you know, night lights meets Twin Peaks um, beautifully written and horrifying uh, stunner of a book. Uh, Micah Nemerever's uh, These Violent Delights, um, about two in 1970s Pittsburgh, which is where I went to, to grad school, uh, a couple of uh, college freshmen in a, you know, in absolutely head over heels, soulfully infatuated with one another in an almost sort of eruptive, violent way because everything that they're doing uh, is is so transgressive to society at the time. Um, and so they've got, you know, when two young people are head over heels in any situation, it can be right. fought. Um, but when you're against a background like that, it can be downright dangerous. And it is just a beautifully told story of, of how that kind of thing might uh, unfold. Um, and then I've also one more, uh, Kelly J. Ford's um, Cotton Mouth, which was out in uh, 2017, I believe, um, from Skyhorse, uh, about a character who's kind of forced to return to her small southern hometown, um, which she had, you know, fled from as a as a as a queer person, and confront that past um, unrequited love of a high school sweetheart who's there, uh, and you know, it, it's a heartbreaking story um, that's just got so much to sink your teeth into, specifically as a queer. Um, a reader myself. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, uh, PJ, I cannot thank you enough. I, I, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the book and I, I wish you every success with Bathhouse. I know it's going to be big and anybody who's any sort of a thriller fan, this is the book for you this summer. It's, it's really, really worth every second of your time and you will not be sorry. Thank you so much for saying that. And thank you for having me on. This was an absolute blast and I, I can't wait to do it again. Me too. Oh, I'm I'm ready. Well, paperback tour maybe live. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Well, th- happy Pride and thank you again. Happy Pride. Next up is Stephen Rowley. Stephen Rowley is the best-selling author of Lily and the Octopus, a Washington Post notable book of 2016, and the editor, named by NPR and Esquire magazine, as one of the best books of 2019. His new novel, The Gunkle, arrived May 25th, 2021. O Magazine hails it as one of the LGBT books changing the literary landscape. 
Rowley's fiction has been published in 20 languages, and you can read a lot more about him at his website, which is www.stephenrowley.com. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Your book is on a gazillion most anticipated lists and reads of the summer lists. It goes from Lambda Literary to the Oprah and then right back to the Christian Science Monitor. So you are <laughs> everywhere. So congratulations on the success of the book. I know it's out just a little bit, but how is it going? It's been a wild two weeks, yeah. Um, and I am just so thrilled with the attention the book has been getting. I think uh, it helps that there's an actual swimming pool on the cover to be on the most anticipated books of summer. But, uh, you know, it's a joyous cover. And I think it's it's strangely, you know, the right book for the moment, you know, in that it is about a character who's been very self-isolating for a long time um, and finding his way back to the light. And isn't that, you know, sort of what we've all been doing these past few months? Yes, it's a perfect set way for our time. Uh, so tell everybody a little bit about the book in case there's one or two people that haven't heard about it already. Yeah, I guess we should start all the way at the very beginning, which is yes. with the title. If, if there's anyone out there who doesn't know what a gunkle is, it's become very popular slang in the past five or 10 years for a gay uncle. And, and more than that, it sort of has a connotation of a larger than life persona a la uh, an anti-mame figure and yes. i'm not sure exactly why that is other than uh you know uh gay gay men may be slightly less likely to have children of their own and they can dote more lavishly on their nieces and nephews or or they fly in from from uh, big cities home for holidays and then they ha you know i, I know for myself in, in particular i live in the california desert i have a swimming pool my nieces and nephews they don't see me go to an office like other adults they know. They don't quite have a hold on my life, but uh, they're very fascinated by it. Yes, there there are a lot of us out there. I know when um, I used to go home and visit my nieces and nephews, they get something from me. And one year they all got T-shirts and said, I heart Uncle Ron. So they had to pose for pictures for me. So I get <laughs> it. I totally get it. Um, yeah. So tell me about the research that you did for the book, because it does feel kind of as though it might be personal, but but it might not be. Yeah, well, the jumping off point was certainly personal. I am a gunkle to five nieces and nephews, uh, the oldest of whom is is 12. Um, and I've had a long fascination with with Auntie Mame and and also Mary Poppins and Maria from The Sound of Music and all these sort of magical caregiving kind of characters. And I wanted to create my own entry in the genre, you know. And so this is a story of Patrick O'Hara, who is a sort of a retired television star who's living a reclusive life in Palm Springs, sort of nursing his own grief when a fresh tragedy strikes and he is tasked with taking in his niece and nephew for the summer. And it leads to a season of healing for all three of them. The inspiration came actually when um, my brother came to visit me with his two boys who were three and five at the time, uh, and then was called back into work on the East Coast to where he's a trial attorney and had to appear in court for one of his clients and he left me with the two boys uh, for the week. And so I felt like a, a supporting or like an understudy thrust into the lead role for the first time. And, and uh, certainly my week was a lot less tragic, but I did document it on Instagram at the end of that week. My, my very astute editor at my publisher pointed out and said, you know, I think there might be something to write about in there. Right. And I had envisioned a light comedic novel like, like MAME, uh, anti-mame, the, the 1955 Patrick Dennis novel, 
um, which then has had many iterations on on Broadway and uh, on the big screen. But uh, early in my writing process, I I actually lost one of my best friends to breast cancer. I'm and sorry. She left behind a six year old son, so it got me thinking much more seriously about grief in children. And and uh, Mame had sent her you know, orphan nephew off to boarding school and sort of sidestepped the whole issue of grief. But I very much didn't want to do that. And so I think the book is all the better for it. I absolutely agree. They are adorable kids and you just kind of feel for them and feel for all the characters too, because they're really trying to make their way. But what I want to point out to anybody who hasn't read it, this book is absolutely hysterical, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's a great mix of heartbreak and, and hysterical though. Can you talk about how you mix those two? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I think that's not unusual for the queer community, you know, who has experienced so much tragedy. And yet we are very joyous and we embrace life and we are still, you know, hopefully wildly funny. And uh, and, you know, as Mame would say herself, you know, live. Uh, and that's, you know, something we very much do, even though comedy and tragedy can be very much two sides of, of the same coin. So it was. um you know, finding that mix, finding that balance of both the humor and and certainly humor and, and sometimes even dark humor is a, is a coping mechanism and a way we pull ourselves through. But finding that right balance was something that was very important to me. And certainly it's the stories that I love. You know, we think of think of the movie Terms of Endearment, for instance. We remember it as the movie where Deborah Winger has to say goodbye to her kids. But it is one of the most hysterically funny movies of all time. And that's, that's sort of the stories that I've always been attracted to. Yeah. And they're wonderful to read too. Like, and you mentioned a lot of the Hollywood films that, that, that influenced you, but Hollywood is a big part of this, this book. I think a lot of the observations that you make and things are there. Um, is it something that you've been involved with and that you pulled from that to put into the story or are you kind of just from memory and reading? Yeah, well, I came to novel writing from screenwriting, actually. You know, I went to film school mm. and thought that I would be have a career as a filmmaker. And here I have now this sort of career uh, as a novelist. And and strangely, it's circled back around and has led me to uh, back to filmmaking in that all three of my my novels are now in development as as feature films. So as much as I have tried to leave Hollywood, I've never been fully able to escape and it's much like patrick the character who thinks he's left hollywood behind uh but he hasn't gone that far and and it was interesting in setting the book in palm springs you know which is a town that really popped up as a hollywood getaway you know in the in the 40s 50s and 60s and so uh it had you know the 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 city itself has such a rich hollywood history as a playground for for movie stars Yes, it does. One of the things that also strikes me about it is even with unexpected circumstances, Patrick especially, but a lot of the other characters really find themselves. So is that kind of reflective of what you were doing for switching from screenwriting to novel writing? (laughs) I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's actually a a perfect observation. Um, You know, filmmaking, I, I love it as an art form. It's very different. It's, it's very collaborative and, uh, you know, where novel writing, you can have um, the benefit of a, a slightly more singular authorial voice. And and in switching and writing novels, I think I really found myself as a writer. So I hadn't made that connection. But, uh, you know, obviously, it's something that uh, is deeply meaningful to me. And I think it was maybe inevitable that uh, that colors some of the, the past for the characters as well. 
That's wonderful. Um, so let's go back a little bit. I, I, Lily and the Octopus was such an amazing book. The editor was such an amazing book. And this one is too. They're not all totally similar. They're a little bit different. But do you want to talk about the progression that you went through for each one to get here? Sure. In fact, you know, I like to be upfront about this in case there's any listeners who are, who are writers or who have writing ambition. Um, you know, Lily and the Octopus was a, a book about a, a gay man grieving, um, you know, sort of the impending loss of his, of his dog, which uh, is a very intense relationship sometimes for, for uh, queer people in particular, who sometimes, you know, it's getting better now that we have fam marriages and children and families. And, but, you know, for a long time, I think a lot of queer people put their sort of, you know, that sort of nurturing side of themselves and in, into, um, you know, their dogs or their pets. But, but as I said, I like to be honest because when I wrote the editor as a follow up, which is a complicated story about a, a gay man and his, and his mother, I had to switch publishers to do that. My, my original publisher did not see that as a follow up for me. And, and, and again, the, the Gunkel is probably not a natural follow up to the editor. It's just there. And it probably, maybe I would have a better career if I, if I wrote this, you know, different versions of the same thing again and again and again. But that's not the writer that I, aspired to be i see you know there's a through line through through the books and in, in i think my voice and and exploration of of grief and estrangement um and that hopefully they're all also very funny but uh they do as you say explore slightly different topics and relationships they do yeah please stay away from the formulaic thing you're just your <laughs> voice is just something that we really need right now and i think in ongoing too it's just going to get better and better so I want to know a little bit more about your early life becoming a writer and as a member of the gay community, how did that affect your, your path? Yeah, it's um, interesting. I've been giving some thought about that recently. Um, you know, I just turned 50. I've been thinking a lot about uh, that, about aging uh, in the gay community, which is something that we don't always embrace. And how fortunate I have felt to celebrate this past birthday when so many beautiful gay men in particular never lived to see um, this birthday and, you know, what they wouldn't trade to to be able to be here and do that. So, you know, and, and it made me think a lot about how much of my life I wanted to be invisible. And, you know, when we're closeted and certainly when I was young and going to, to high school in the 80s and whatnot, um, you know, it was a very different time. And I spent I, you know, so much of that time not wanting to be, to be seen, to be invisible. And yet when you're closeted like that, you are still observing. You're very, you you start to remain sometimes as still as possible, but, but you're observing other people very carefully. And so I think that probably a writer was born then. Uh, but it wasn't until I had the courage to, to uh, put myself out there and realize the importance of telling our stories out loud that, uh, you know, that I could find some success. That's, I love it. I love it. Um, I'm going to jump back just a little bit because you did mention that two of your books are on their way to becoming films. Um, is the Gunkel going to join them? And can you tell us the status of the other two? Yes, the Gunkel is joining them. Yes. Um, for uh, yeah, for, it will be a big screen adaptation uh, for Lionsgate Studios and uh, producer uh, Kristen Burr, who just did Cruella. Um, so I'm very yeah. excited about that, about bringing a big screen family mm -hmm. 
film with a very untraditional uh, family to the to the big screen. The other two movies, you know, COVID really slowed things down, but they're picking up right. steam really quickly. Lily and the Octopus is going to be a, a, a movie from Amazon Studios. Uh, the editor also with with 20th Century, which is now uh, owned by the Walt Disney Company. So um, things are things are moving forward on on uh, on both fronts, and it's been fascinating. I I. I am writing the adaptation for the Gunkle. I did write the adaptation for the editor. I did not write the adaptation for Lily and the Octopus because uh, my first novel, because that was such a deeply personal and uh, semi autobiographical story. And and I just thought I I'm not necessarily the best person to to do that. I was too too close to the the source material to sort of break it apart and reassemble it for the screen. Yeah, I, I've talked to other people who like once you hand it over, it, it gets changed a lot sometimes and i you'd want to hold on to it probably yeah, you can't be precious about the, the yeah. source material which is sometimes hard to do when you're the author of that source material exactly exactly so do you have a, a dream cast for the gunkle <laughs> well I, you know i think there are a couple names at the top of everyone's dream list right now certainly dan levy coming off of shit's yeah, creek and do no wrong um you know billy eichner is someone i think is hysterically funny uh mm-hmm. jim parsons i think it, i think what's essential to me for this role and i don't i don't always have a hard and fast rule that um you know an out uh, lgbtq plus actor has to play a role, you know, I take it more on an individual uh, basis, but for this one, I really, it really is essential to me. You know, we're talking about, you know, say Mary Poppins as an example, someone who has right. some literal magic to her. Patrick's magic as a caregiver for these, for his niece and his nephew, it all comes from his lived experience as a gay man, his, right. his empathy, his humor, his pop cultural references, his politics, his worldview. It's all informed by his, lived experience as a, as a gay man. So I think it's truly essential that uh, an out actor uh, play this role. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I think they would relate better to all the gunkel rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, like anyone that? who envisions themselves as a modern day anti-mame, yeah, Patrick has a number of uh, bon mots that he uh, puts forward as these gunkel rules, sort of rules for living. Yeah, I think he's been like an influence that's going to affect these kids in such a positive way for the rest of their life. So it's it, it's just so well put together. So this going back a little bit, um, when did you first see yourself in a book? Oh, that's a great question um, because uh, yeah, representation so matters. You know, I it was it, it's now so put on the spot. I'm going to be hard pressed to Sorry. come up with a single title, but. Um, I just, you know, it was, it was, it's hard to remember how quickly things have changed for the better. Um, you know, and representation was not something, um, that I saw a lot of, or certainly, um, when, when queer people were in books, they were often sort of written as coded or mm. they had a sad or a tragic ending. Um, and so I just feel so very proud to, to be able to write queer stories today about people sort of finding their way and that there are, you know, not, to, not to hopefully spoil anything, but, um, you know, uh, happier endings for, uh, for all of my characters. Yes. Yes. And I think that's very important and it, it shows the progress that we're seeing. So I, I'm all on board with that. So I wouldn't leave you without asking about 
Byron's book and and what happened at the end of that book. <laughs> so yes, I live with another writer, Byron Lane, who wrote uh, his uh, debut novel called The Star is Bored. Which is came fantastic. Out last summer. Awesome. It's a fantastic read. If you like my books, I guarantee you will like uh, his as well. And, uh, and uh, you know, since we're both writers and uh, in a relationship, we lean on each other heavily. We're our first each other's first readers. We offer notes along the way. And so I thought I knew that book for, frontwards and backwards, but he snuck in uh, four extra words at the back of his acknowledgments. Will you marry me? And uh, so for anyone who had read Byron's book and was waiting to see what happened, I actually answer <laughs> that proposal in the acknowledgments for the Gunkel. So this is this is a very slow moving uh, relationship <laughs> for outsiders to sort of follow along, but uh, it's, it's like an epistolary love story uh, happening in the in the acknowledgments for our books. But but spoiler alert, uh, you know, if you follow either of us, you'll sort of realize that it, that it worked out and uh, it did work out. Yeah, what a great yeah. story! What it's such a great story. And it's true. It's very funny to imagine our. Uh, you know, our proposal and acceptance now now documented in the Library of Congress. So That's I don't know right. anybody, who else could say that about their relationship. <laughs> I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody. Um, so what's on the horizon for you? Um, well, I'm very busy sort of moving these uh, th three movies uh, towards production. Um, I have been writing. Uh, obviously, we'll see. We'll see. I, I have to sort of revisit what I've written over the past year and see if it's any good. It's it's an interesting time because um, I always think of writing as an input output business, and it's been very difficult to get the input in the past year and a half. You know, it's been difficult to be out in the world observing. Um, and, and, and picking up all those rich details that make, uh, that make writing, um, come alive. And so, you know, and even when you've been able to, to observe people, they're behind masks and whatnot, which, which makes it harder to, to really, um, feel like that, that creative coffers are full. So, right. um, I'm excited to be back, uh, rejoining the world and, uh, hopefully that's going to bring fresh inspiration and, and, uh, but I'm always working on something. And so. Excited to see what happens. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been a gas, and I could do this for 17 weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, the Gunkel is amazing, and everybody should go grab a copy of it right away. And it's it really is a joyous book. There's so much in it for everybody, too. It's not just a, a targeted book. It, everybody can find themselves in this book. So congratulations on that, and happy pride. Happy pride. Thank you. Next up is Virginia Willis. Virginia Willis is a Georgia-born French-trained chef. Her, her biography includes making chocolate chip cookies with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, foraging for berries in the Alaskan wilderness, harvesting capers in the shadow of a smoldering volcano in Sicily, and hunting for truffles in France. She's a talent and chef instructor for the new digital streaming platform on the Food Network Kitchen. She was given multiple high-profile talks to people all over the place. She's cooked for the James Beard Foundation, and she has beguiled celebrities such as Bill Clinton, Morgan Freeman, and Jane Fonda with her cooking. But it all started in her grandmother's kitchen, and I can't wait to talk to her about that. She is also the author of Secrets of the Southern Table, which is one of my go-to cookbooks. Uh, it's a food lover's tour of the global south, and she's written many, many other award-winning books that are all listed on her website, virginiawillis.com. So don't miss going there and learning 
all kinds of things about her, and you're going to want to after our talk today. She has been the TV kitchen director for Martha Stewart Living, Bobby Flay, and Natalie Dupree. She's worked in Michelin-starred restaurants, and she's traveled the world producing food stories and been on CHOP, CBS This Morning, Fox Family and Friends, Martha Stewart Living, and also as a judge on Throwdown with Bobby Flay. She's been in every major newspaper and food magazine with the Chicago Tribune calling her one of the seven food writers you need to know. And I would second that. Her legion of fans love her down-to-earth attitude, approachable spirit, and traveling exploits. And we're going to talk a lot more about her consulting company because there's a lot there. This woman never, ever, ever stops. So please welcome Virginia. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I I chuckle when you're reading my bio. It's like, who wrote that? And I guess I wrote that, but it makes it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I uh, I have a great varietal of career, as evidenced by everything there. And there's so much more more than that is there. Um, you have been such an inspiration for so many, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today. But my first question is, do you ever sleep? <laughs> Yes, I do. No, I do. You know, um, well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I'm honored to be on. It's always a pleasure to get to to tell a story and hopefully, you know, get people in the kitchen cooking and eating. So, yes, I sleep. I love to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your bio mentioned, and I, I mentioned a minute ago, about your grandmother's kitchen. Can you tell us about that beginning? Because it sounds like it was kind of a kernel that uh, kind of made yeah. you who you were today. Yes, very much so. So when I was a very little girl, my parents lived right next door to my grandparents. And so my grandparents were essentially my babysitters from you know birth to three years old. And I remember, I don't really remember much, of course, being a toddler, but I remember always being in the kitchen. And I don't have a photograph of it, but uh, I have been told that when my grandmother would be shelling peas or something like that, she had a a double steel sink and she would put me in one side of the sink and shuck peas or whatever in the other side of the sink. And so I feel like that I I came into being essentially in a kitchen. Yes, you did. You did. So what was your path from there? When did you first realize that this was going to be your career? Well, I mean, there's a lot between three and career, but, you know, (laughs) yeah, but I did, you know, I started there photographs of me making biscuits with my grandmother, you know, standing on a chair. My mother was always an avid cook, a great cook. Um, I just was, we were, I was in the kitchen my whole life and it just, it felt like, well, it felt like home, but also I come from the country. We put up, we preserved uh, food and homemade food was, was as much a part of my life as anything. So I have a degree in history from the University of Georgia. Um, I graduated in 1989. I sort of wound up in retail and floundering at 25. That's awful, awful young to be floundering. Um, and I realized, like, I'd always love to cook. I'd always love to cook. Well, I needed to pursue that. So essentially, uh, 25, age 25, I started on this path of becoming a, a chef and a food writer. Well, I for one am so glad you did. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like entering the food industry though as a member of the gay community? 
Well, I have to be honest, I wasn't super out in the beginning, right? Um, But I will tell you that because, you know, I'm so I'm 54, uh, you know, 34 years ago, it was a very different scene. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, very, very different. Now, having said that, my first job cooking was on Natalie Dupree's cooking show, and I met Ray Overton, who was her culinary director at the time, um, we met at this very scandalous gay bar um, in Atlanta <laughs> for my interview, um, and I got the job uh, as an intern there. So with certain uh, certain groups, I was out and able to be myself, and then with southern certain groups, uh, I wasn't able to be, but that is that has also greatly changed over the years. It has. And I want to say that um, so many of us were exactly like that. And you're kind of a beacon for people and you kind of represent. And so it, it kind of makes you a treasure now because you have that history. Um, okay. What are some of the biggest things that you've seen change in the industry uh, for people in the community? Well, gosh, I mean, I think the first thing is, is just not lying or not not lies by omission. Mm -hmm. I mean, that um, I I actually wrote something that I just posted a few days ago or yesterday on Facebook and I've gotten such response by it. And I I didn't mean it to be anything other than just what I was thinking about it. Right. I mean, I didn't mean it to be necessarily inspirational and just heartfelt. Right. Like when I came out at 20 years old, it was not well received by all of my family and all of my friends. And um, when I mean not well received, uh, some there were degrees of, you know, real dislike uh, to dis- to mild discomfort. But um, I felt like it was what I needed to do. It, 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 it's me. And, and I feel strongly, even more strongly now about it. It's no different than I have green eyes. Right. I have green eyes and I'm gay. They're just too. Two things. And you're a talented chef. <laughs> yeah. And the, but, but the talented chef has been through training and exercise and mm-hmm. education. I was born with green eyes and I feel gotcha. like, I, and I feel like I was born gay. Right. So this is right. something I can't change nor, nor now, maybe once upon a time, but not even really, I've never wanted to be anyone different than what I was, but I have definitely over my life wanted to have more comfort in who I was. And so um, what has changed in the industry over the years? Um, you know, I remember being, I was outed when I went to La Varenne. I was outed by an unscrupulous gossipy chef to Ann Willen. And wow. I was uh, terrified and horrified and I had just gotten this three-month stage living and working in France, and this happened. He was trying to sort of use that information as bait to get to get on her good graces. And, you know, God bless Anne. She didn't skip a beat. I, I was a good cook. I was a good student. I was a good editorial assistant, and it didn't, it didn't matter to her. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm backing up one second. You mentioned um, working for Natalie Dupree. I got the extreme pleasure to meet her for the first time last year and i mm-hmm. i just wanted to bow at her feet she's just so graceful and and kind and um wonderful to know that you worked with her 
Uh, Natalie, uh, so my first job in a kitchen was working on Natalie Dupree's cooking show. Natalie is a very, very dear friend um, and mentor still. And um, she is truly one of the, the moving forces in my life and a, and, a, and a guiding light. Yeah. And she's a dear friend of the uh, Fab Five authors, the friends and fiction authors to who yes. I am. Yes. So what was life like in the pandemic? Oh, dear. Well, um, I actually moved back to Atlanta in the fall of 19. Um, unfortunately, a long-term relationship that I was in ended and I had been living in New England. And so I moved back to Atlanta and I was very happy to be back in Atlanta. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, being back with friends and family and then poof, no friends and family or no right. free. So um, it really, uh, it was an opportunity for a great deal of reflection and introspection. Of course, I was terrified for my friends and family. Um, I was concerned for everyone's health and welfare, but I knew that for me personally, it was important for me to sort of stay on the path of health and wellness that I had started. And it was very, even more so important for me to make sure that I was taking care of myself, both, you know, mentally, physically and spiritually. So I, I tried very hard to stay healthy in all the ways during the pandemic. Yes, you did. And, um, Congratulations on your health journey. I think that's been documented yeah. and uh, <laughs> you really you really have worked very, very hard at it. What um, what tips might you have for people who are thinking to go down the same path? Oh, gosh. Well, so first of all, for those of you that don't know, um, I've lost 65 pounds and, and that's pretty significant. Um, it's taken about it took two years. Um, I'm still I still feel like I'm still on the journey, though. You know, wellness is not. I heard something the other day that I really love. Wellness is not a destination. It's a state of action. So God willing, I'll be in the state of action as long as I'm on this earth. Right. right. So tips. I think that the biggest tip that I have to say is that if a Southern born French trained Southern chef can get her health in order, then damn it, you can too. That's, <laughs> You're that's so right. Tip. That's my first tip. <laughs> You're uh, so right. Yeah. So uh, um, I, I feel it's not about a size. It's about uh, how we feel. That's that's the second thing I would say. That's very, very good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one other thing I noticed that during the pandemic that you did was that you started a Facebook um, events, uh, mm. Cookbooks with Virginia. So can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, thank you so much for asking me, Ron. Um, so Cookbooks with Virginia, I love cookbooks and I've written cookbooks and I mm. know so many cookbook authors. And, you know, there's 10 million and 12 videos a day on how to chop an onion. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, but I wanted to be able to highlight some of the wonderful cookbooks that come out and also to highlight those that may not be, you know, someone like, I don't know, Reed Drummond or Ina Garden, like the big ones that everyone, that People Magazine features, right? I wanted to to highlight some of the lesser known works. And uh, Cookbooks with Virginia uh, live streams on Facebook and YouTube every Friday at 1130 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
And then after the live stream, I upload it to Instagram and it's gotten a great little following and it's really fun for me. So thank you so much for asking me about it. And you've had some really wonderful guests on some bigger names. So even some of these, I'm obviously a big cookbook collector. And if I bring any more into the house, I'll have to move. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, but lesser known ones that, uh, really deserve the spotlight and you bring them out. So I thank you for doing that. No, yes. I, I'm, it's nice, right? I mean, I know what it's like for people and you know, like small university presses that don't have big marketing departments. And, and um, you know, I, I, it sounds a bit pompous, but the deal is it's called Cookbooks with Virginia. So I get to make the decisions and I get to have on the books <laughs> that I want to have on. <laughs> but yes, I, I am I am excited. Um, I've got some great guests lined up. Um, Aaron Mandel is going to be on, and uh, Nancy McDermott's coming up again. Oh, and good. Uh, 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 Carla Hall has said that she would want to be on. Oh, I'm there for that one. Yeah, and Dory Greenspan. I'm thrilled <gasps> that Dory Greenspan's going to be a guest on in October. So it's a, it's a little engine that could that seems like it's growing. That's wonderful. I love love Dory Greenspan too. She's mm-hmm. fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, let's talk about cookbooks, though. But let's talk about yours. Um, as you know, Secrets of the Southern Table is one of my favorite cookbooks. In fact, I my go to recipe for uh, braised collards with a Parmesan tomato oh, broth is a go to. Every time I try to think I'm going to make it another way, nope, we go back to this. That is like, to see, it's the umami, right? It's like the umami yes. and the greens, umami and the tomato, umami and the Parmesan. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. So much yeah. flavor. Yeah. Everybody I cook it for loves it. And yeah. we well, call it party in our mouth. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for having me at your table. I greatly appreciate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell to us about that book because it, um, it's such a wonderful book. Thank you so much. Secrets of the Southern Table, the, the, what I really wanted to do with that, it's my cookbooks are highly personal. So my first cookbook was Bon Appetit, y'all. It's recipes and stories from three generations. And then, you know, my, my over the 10 years of my career, I, I wrote different books. But Secrets of the Southern Table was the evolution of trying to tell everyone what my South was. And I feel like that people hear people that talk like me. And they make these automatic assumptions about um, education and politics and all the things, right? People right. hear a Southern accent and they expect to see, you know, Dixie waving things like Charlottesville or something. And, and I feel very strongly that, that, um, that, that I'm not that, right? I'm not that. And that is a truth for some people, but it's not my truth. So Secrets of the Southern Table is about sharing recipes and stories from the the very multicultural region that the South is, you know, um, there it's, it's not just black and white. Um, There have been Chinese in Mississippi since the 1800s. The second oldest synagogue in the United States was founded in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. I mean, there's so much, uh, so many different cultures in the South. And I wanted to share that with people. And thank you for doing that. Um, I'll, what I want to say also is that I've, I've come to know that cookbooks are more than just instruction. They are so they're stories and they're, um, mm-hmm. they don't get their due. And I, there's nothing I love more than picking up one and learning so much about a region or a, a food or a people and, 
I, I just learned so much from them and everybody should really look at them that way. And that's, this is such a prime example. And you didn't just stay in one area. You kind of went all across the South and, and, and brought in all kinds of different cuisine and, and influence. And, um, it's, it's just a wonderful book. So I uh, thank you for thank publishing you. that. Thank you so much. Um, Angie Mosier, the photographer, a dear friend. Of <laughs> yes. Love Angie Mosier. Um, so she and I visited 13 states over the course of four seasons. We went from Texas, basically Texas, all the way east, and then up through Virginia. Wow. It, it, was, it, was an, it was an incredible journey. As much as I thought as I knew about the South, as long as I've lived in the South, as much as I've traveled through the South, I learned so much more about the South. And I, I certainly hope it's apparent in that book. Very apparent. Very apparent. So everybody run out and get this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about you giving back. You're such a strong advocate, not only for the gay community, but for women and people in the food industry and food insecurity. And I don't know where it even ends, but um, talk about how important your advocacy is to you. I think it's just as simple as do the right thing. I don't know mm-hmm. how to say it any other way. It kind of that kind of got me because um, it's your part. No, it's okay. Um, this response to uh, me being so vocal about um, coming out 34 years ago, I didn't realize it was going to have so much impact. And it's it's kind of, I mean, in a way, it's not gone viral, like gone viral, crazy gone viral, but it's gone pretty viral. And the response has been overwhelming and people are thanking me for my leadership and thanking me for advocacy. And, you know, gosh, I just want to say I'm just trying to help some scared little girl that hadn't come out yet. That's what I'm thinking of. And I just think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's, you continue to inspire. I, I'm just so thrilled. I'm so thrilled. And I, I haven't read that piece yet, but I, I'm going to right after we're done and then I'll start yeah. sharing it everywhere. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, you know, the, I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna. I know that the world is complicated, right? Right. And I, I, I know that, um, I know that there are lots of different opinions and things, but if we would just try to focus on what's good, and if we would just try to focus on doing one good thing a day for somebody else, I just think the world would be a better place. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. So um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. And uh, Virginia, I could talk to you forever. And I... I, I hope this is just the beginning of lots of collaboration. And when we can actually be in the same city, we'll grab Kathy Trocheck and go have dinner somewhere. That sounds fabulous. I know where y'all can come have dinner. Y'all come have dinner at my house. How about that? I'm in. I'm totally in for that. <laughs> so that's awesome. So thank you again and uh, happy Pride. And thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much. Happy Pride to you as well. Bon appetit, y'all. Thank you to all the guests who joined us today. What a great way to celebrate the month of pride. Please go out and be nice to people and and just celebrate and reflect and happy pride to everyone. I want to end with a quote from Gertrude Stein who said, you look ridiculous if you dance, you look ridiculous if you don't dance, so you might as well dance. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.
produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.